Hey, it's Greg Brady. Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast. Sheba Siddiqui and myself talk about what to expect tomorrow on the National Day of Truth and Reconciliation. Both on our show, we'll all be here uh, with a live show as per usual, but it won't be your usual show, not by a long shot. So we advance some of that, talk about what we're hopeful gets discussed tomorrow across the country, in schools, in workplaces, in houses, for sure. Uh, things that, let's face it, our parents may have missed and our grandparents certainly may have missed. We'll uh, talk about a few other issues on the show as well, including a visit from Councillor Josh Matlow. We talk about a Supreme Court ruling on Friday that's coming with the Ford government pitched against the city uh, as the city had city council uh, during an election campaign in 2018, the municipal election. City council shaved down almost in half as the election was going on and ridings were set. Was that unconstitutional? Well, Josh Matlow certainly has an opinion on that per se. All that coming up on the Toronto Today podcast. Thanks for listening. Uh, the James Bond movie, I'm seeing reviews of it yesterday, uh, finally coming out. They're finally screening for movie critics, you know, um, the Siskels and Eberts, the new style Siskels and Eberts. Um, they're screening No Time to Die. And I read this on Time Magazine's website, or excuse me, their Twitter page, Time Magazine, uh, where Hans Gruber read about the uh, Asian Dawn and why he wanted to like delay when he was at Nakatomi Plaza. So you're talking about one action film by referencing another <laughs> yeah. action film? Review. No Time to Die is an imperfect movie, but it's a perfect finale for the best James Bond ever. And Whoa. I thought, let's not, let's no, not do this. To, that was View to a Kill with Roger Moore. <laughs> that was the best finale well, for I, the best James Bond ever. I'm a, Jane, I'm a Roger Moore, what do the kids call it, Stan? I'm a Roger Moore stan, and I defend Roger Moore, but I and I think it's closer that gap between the Connery movies and the Moore movies. I think Live Live and Let Die is phenomenal. Agreed. I think View to a Kill is really good, and I wish he'd made more after that. But I get why people love, you know. But he was old by that point. He's old in '85. Well, remember they brought Sean Connery back to make. Um, yeah, all, Diamonds Are Forever. Isn't no. it a problem that all you can picture Sean Connery as is Daryl Hammond doing Sean Connery on Jeopardy it's on sad. Saturday Night Live? It really it's is really. Sad. But I've not heard that. I've never even heard that put out there that Daniel Craig is couldn't like. I don't think I that's have. a popular opinion. No, I think it is. I think most people say Connery number one and then Craig number two. And then Moore is like a, a laughing I, stock. No. And I got to say the two Timothy Dalton ones are some of my favorites. Okay. Uh, License so to Kill and uh, Living Daylight. We're going to run the gamut, whatever the gamut is, um, because I like the Pierce Brosnan movies. I can defend the world is I not gotta enough. I got to say, I did not. I watched them Whoa. each once and I was like, I'm not feeling Robert this. Robert Carlyle from Trainspotting in The World is Not Enough. You got you got Denise Richards playing Christmas Jones. Was never a fan of her. <laughs> she, <laughs> she, Denise I still remember the last line of that movie. <laughs> what is it? <laughs> oh, I, I don't think I can say, say it. it. <laughs> I want Sheba to say it, but I don't want to say it. I'll, uh, I'll uh, leave it at that. My fingers on the delay button. Go ahead. Sheba, is that... Christmas is, cup. Yo, go Christmas ahead. comes once a year. I thought Christmas only came once a year. <laughs> That's it, right? I like Pierce Brosnan. Have you guys heard about who they're considering for the new? I don't know if it's just a rumor, but... Idris uh, Elba, yes. No. Ooh. Tom Roy Hardy? Kent. Roy oh Kent. My Who's Roy gosh. Kent? Yeah, who is Roy Ted Kent? Lasso. Yeah, yeah, I'm in. I'm in. I would do that. Jason Sudeikis? No. The <laughs> no. Guy, there's a bearded guy that plays a gruff oh, yeah. soccer I player. That. I don't watch show. Okay, sorry. He'd be an amazing James Bond. I'm in on the what about actor. You and McGregor? Would you and McGregor make a good James Bond? I feel like that window came. There's another British eh. actor. The window kind of came and went. There was a window in a period of time. 
I think Liam Gallagher should be the next James Bond. That's an interesting one. Sheba, is that a popular thought that Daniel Craig is the best Bond? I've never heard. Oh, it I don't before. know about that. I, I thought Sean Connery. I know that. Yeah, I've heard about Roger, but I liked Sean Connery. I did think Pierce Brosnan was a. Yeah, I liked him as James Bond. I, and I, I think we talked about this on the show last week when he said, listen, let's write better parts for women and actors of color. Let's 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 not pigeonhole because he was asked if Bond should be played by a woman. And he said, let's let's find better parts. Let's find more unique characters. Um, yeah, and I, absolutely not. No, Bond needs to be a man. Yeah. And yes, sure. Get that powerful woman that, you know, with all of her gadgets and her tricks up her sleeve and whatnot. But mm. no, you need a sexy man to play james bond now i don't know why daniel craig said we want to have an an, uh, an unvaxxed man be a be a bond be the bond i don't know why he would bring <laughs> that into the jerk why would he think andrew wiggins would make a great james bond why is that something that that appeals uh, to him at a certain point in time hey sheba while we're chit chatting uh tomorrow is the national day of truth and reconciliation people have asked so i will answer and and uh, you can help me with this a ton. Um, we're going to do a show tomorrow. People say, are you doing a live show? We are. And I don't know what it's like in your household or your community, but I think there's some confusion about about the holiday. It's not on anybody's calendar, right? Because they added it during the year. I'm glad they did. It's probably years long overdue. But are you finding that, that people aren't sure open, closed, kids, school, going, not going? Like, we'll be here and doing our, our usual, a special show. I wouldn't even say our usual show based on the day that it is tomorrow to observe and remember and, and try and move this boulder forward that sort of landed on a lot of us this year. And it shouldn't have taken this long to land on us, but it's here now. Well, we have a very special show tomorrow with some amazing guests, but I do feel that it was rushed. It seemed like they just threw it into the calendar. I don't know how many, how long. It's, it is definitely overdue. I mean, at school, my kids have orange shirt day tomorrow. So that's how they'll be, you know, commemorating the day. And they know the history behind it because they've had orange shirt day for several years now. So they understand the importance and the history behind that. Uh, I do feel it is a bit rushed, but I mean, it's better late than never, I think. Yeah, it is. And, and, uh, and I hope that when they, like in the quad mastery, you can imagine I got a high school kid who will have math and then he'll have outdoor education. I hope my recollection, maybe I'm romanticizing high school. I don't know how you guys feel about it, uh, Robin Sheba, but what I recall from high school is either in homeroom or whatever, you talk about things. You talk if there was an election the night before or a massive sporting event. And I just sometimes when my kids get home, I'm like, did you do enough about this? Like even I, I don't care if you're a math teacher, science teacher, you don't have to teach in the social sciences. Can can these teachers please, please. And I'm an advocate for teachers. People know that spend 20 minutes, take it away from the curriculum and talk about this tomorrow because maybe the kids aren't getting that kind of conversation. at home. They're not as dialed in as the Siddiqui household or the Brady household. Maybe they should be. It's so important. I really hope so, too. But I, I find that my kids' teachers are talking to them about it. Good. They come home with, you know, little bits, whatever sticks. I don't know nowadays what does stick. But they'll come home and they'll tell me something interesting about their day that's related to, you know, the Orange Shirt Day every year. or just. And some of them, I mean, my younger kids, as they learn about it as they get older, they're just blown away. They're blown away by what happened. And obviously, it's always age-appropriate explanations. But it's good for them to know. I remember going to my parents sitting outside, um, you know, and uh, and I'm not even sure I was fully vaccinated yet. So maybe that's why I was outside. But it was a nice day. And so I sit there and I've only there was a period where I probably only saw them, maybe made three visits to London in 10 months. And I've said it before. They both taught. We grew up in a. Uh, it, you know, it, it was a very um, conscientious household. I really do believe that. And I hope that's shaped me. But they said, we we miss this. Like, it was weird to hear my parents say, we didn't get it. We didn't know about it. We feel stupid. We didn't know about it. But their point was, if we didn't know about it, 
85 percent of their neighbors and their their work colleagues didn't know about it they just thought residential schools okay that's interesting maybe they're getting a good edge they didn't know they just didn't get it and neither did we i mean i didn't learn about this growing up i knew nothing i was never taught anything about indigenous communities in canada until i was much much older yeah, it took it took quite a long time. And I, I told this story before about going to we used to play baseball on um, the Oneida Indian Reserve outside of London. And even when you're eight and you're like, why do I feel tense? Why there is why is there? Why am I getting looked at? And you're not used to that. Right. Because I went I just ha- it happened to be that way. I love that my kid goes to school and it's basically uh, it's so multicultural. His soccer team, I say this. 13 kids on it. He's one of three white kids. It's a regular United Nations. I love it. I hear the parents talking and and sharing cultural ideas and meal. I love it. But I didn't get that. I was like, it was as white. I think we had one black kid in school of maybe 30 people. I never went to school with an Asian person. I didn't know who was Jewish. Never went to school with an Indian or Pakistani person until maybe late in high school. Honestly, and and that's and that's one of those things. So you go to a uh, a native reserve, um, and and you just. You feel weird. You know you're getting stared at and you're sort of eight and you're like, what did I do? But then you realize, like you realize the distrust and the decades of it that's been built up. And it's something, again, a day like tomorrow, you know how I am with, with uh, and we complain about virtue signaling. Something's got to happen 365 days a year or, or, does, or it doesn't to matter to me. It just doesn't yep. matter. I don't yep. raise and all. We have f- to be very careful that it's not performative. Right? Yeah, it's across all companies, all people everywhere. It's not just about this one day where you bring people in. There's a fine line between wanting to educate people, wanting to learn ourselves and then being performative. So that's really important. It's funny that you say that about how you were, you know, there was only one black kid at your school. I was that kid. I was the you were only my school? brown kid <laughs> at my school. So I went to yeah. a completely all white school and I was the only brown kid there. So that was my experience. I was the other. And, and it's one of those things where, yeah, like I, I said it after the shooting in um, after the, the, the murders in, in London, I should say. And we'd have, you know, Jugmeet Singh on and, and we had a lot of people from the London community on. And I said, let's like stuff gets lost in the headlines. We just move so quickly. We take we take a camera, we focus in on something and we swing it around to something else in a really big hurry. But like we can raise flagpoles up and down. We can have days of this, days of that, this ribbon, this T-shirt. It's got to, you know, oh, here's a black square for Instagram. That's great. What are you doing on your street? What are you are you shutting down a bad joke? Are you telling a neighbor he can't say that? Are you are you rolling? Are, are you watching somebody roll their eyes at, at, at a family walking by because they don't look like you? All of that stuff. It's the tiny little things. And I think you and I have had this conversation maybe when I was even working um, for Alan's show when you were producing Alan's show. I said, I, all, all I can do is try and be part a, a little part of the difference. And I don't want my kids dealing with what I deal with. Let's unpack it now so that when they're my age, they're like, wow, a lot of good got done. Instead, we just push this off generation to gen. You deal with it. You deal with it. No, you deal with mm-hmm. it. And I don't. I, who wants that anymore? I don't. I feel like there is a resurrection, though. I feel like it's so in your face now and you're either embracing it or you're running the opposite way. So hopefully we can all teach our kids to continue to embrace it and see the beauty in each other. Here's a struggle too. Like you and I, um, you know, I, I like to assist in uh, booking the show when we book the show. So this is like a little behind the curtain. What I worry about, and what you and I haven't even had a conversation about, is in trying to book shows. And even when we did a day to listen in the summer here on Global News Radio six forty Toronto, it's weird, right? Because people are like, oh, you're calling me for today. Like you don't want that either. But you don't yeah. want to let the day pass by and go. Well, we just did the bare minimum. Nobody wants that either. It's you, you walk that fine line in a lot of circumstances. 
Well, there are so many incredible voices in this country, indigenous, black, people of color, white. We want everybody all the mm. time. So, I mean, that is that is a mandate for me. It's not just, oh, there, here's this special day. Here's Black Lives Matter. Let me call the best black person I know for a... No, I want your voice. I want your perspective on this station mm. as much as possible. That's the voice of Shiba Siddiqui. Two big things are happening. We're going to have Josh Matlow on uh, later at 831. He's one of a couple city councillors who want um, an independent look. And they want a public inquiry into the city's role in encampment clearings in the summer. You know what a big story that was. I'd be on in the morning. Things would start to mobilize. You'd see cops on horses and you're like, this is going to be a day. This is going to be really, really problematic. Uh, a great op-ed on NowToronto.com. Uh, and I want to bring in Caitlin Schwan, who is a co-author of that op-ed, to talk about this particular issue. Caitlin, it's great to have you on here. Thank you very much for making the time for our listeners. Thanks for having me, Greg. Absolutely. Um, you, you know, there's two major issues here. And as you know, sometimes we we can't walk and chew gum at the same time anymore. And the two issues are, well, should the encampments be in the park? Should residents live outside? That's a totally debatable thing to talk about. What isn't debatable is exactly how aggressive and, and to some extent militant the city was and, and to, to some extent violent uh, from police and private security firms clearing those people out. Those are two entirely different independent issues. Yeah, well, I mean, I think they're deeply related. Certainly mm -hmm. what we know is shelters have been enormously over, at overcapacity for many months and years, and people have made, quite honestly, a very rational choice to be residing in parks, um, in part because of the COVID pandemic. You know, I, I, in good conscience, couldn't send someone I know or love to go and live in a shelter where they risk exposure to COVID. Um, and so, you know, I think the kind of what I what I framed in the op-ed as the human rights defense uh, of folks expressing their right to housing, that's what we're now seeing uh, criminalized and um, folks being represented in court to address. Before I get to some of, of that and uh, and the issues with some of these uh, charges, um, I look at other cities and, and and the mornings that they were happening and how viscerally we all were reacting to to the images, the still images, the videos we saw is looking at. And sometimes we do have to look to our friends to the south in cities like Portland, Seattle, um, uh, you know, uh, Houston, Texas has done a great job of this with tiny houses, and they've realized over time that they're better off spending the money building, uh, you know, like basically meeting in the middle and saying, here's here's a residence. Here's a safe space. It's got running water. It's got electricity. It's got all that. So it's not a shelter, but it's also not a tent in the park, which, as we know, with our winters um, is is not sustainable 12 months a year. And these cities have have figured this out without spending millions of dollars just to clear people from one spot to another. That's right. I mean, just a couple of weeks ago, the city of Toronto released how much they had spent um, on clearing three encampments. So they actually uh, spent $2 million to clear just Alexandra Park, Trinity Bellwoods and Lamport Stadium. And that was just for 60 people. So a very small number of people were cleared. And um, the Toronto Drop-In Network actually kind of crunched the numbers on this and found that that amount could actually house all 60 people for two years at kind of average rental units in Toronto. Um, so I think we really do need to think about, are we spending the funds we have in adequate ways? And are we spending sufficient funds to really address the housing crisis 
at our doorstep. And I, I mean, to your point, thinking about where are there solutions around the world, there's also been cities like uh, across, you know, Europe, for example, in Portugal and Barcelona, where cities have expropriated uh, vacant mm-hmm. units from corporate landlords or private landlords in the face of a global pandemic where people's lives are being threatened and use that housing to house folks who, who, who can't access it otherwise. So looking at those models, I think, would be really, really important for Toronto. Caitlin Schwann's joining us, Director of Research at The Shift. I'm so glad you brought that up because I hear people. And listen, these kind of things, if, if they come up uh, during, uh, you know, uh, what should we do with the homeless? What are we? I was driving in Sudbury in the week and I saw um, Sudbury's not a big city and I saw a massive encampment. There must have been 30 people. My 13 year old said, what's that? And I'm like, it's shocking mm-hmm. to see that many people having a struggle. And these tiny houses that they're building in some of these North American cities, they're not meant to be a dead end they're not meant to be an end game this is meant to be moving from step a to b and you know and i know some of these steps are tough to take like like people do have to accept the help and and it's tricky sometimes because some of them are struggling and and we got to understand their struggles but we also we also want to elevate their existence and and just get them to better places yeah and i mean when you speak to a vast vast majority of folks who are living in encampments they want permanent housing. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think folks see encampments as a solution. People desperately want permanent housing. And when cities have used other approaches, like giving a direct pathway from an encampment into permanent housing, again, a vast majority of folks are taking those options, are enormously excited to be able to kind of start their lives in places that are safe and secure. So when you see the money involved, um, and that was that came out about... 11, 12 days ago, like, what's mm-hmm. your reaction? You just go, like, do you just roll your eyes? Do you shake your fist? How does it make you feel? <laughs> oh, that's a great question. <laughs> well, yeah, thank you. <laughs> Once in a while. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm just, it, it breaks my heart because I think we can do so much better. I think Toronto has quite honestly lost its way. Um, and we have the opportunity to become a national, international leader if we switched our approach to addressing encampments. I mean, other cities across Canada are looking to what we're doing and adopting similar approaches. We saw this in Halifax in the summer as well. Um, so really, mm-hmm. I think that the kind of investment we're making in the policing of homelessness um, is really about reducing the visibility of homelessness rather than addressing the problem. Um, so we really need to be turning to solutions we know are there and frankly are not enormously complex. We need to build affordable or create affordable housing, supportive housing, nonprofit housing, um, because it is the solution to homelessness. Evictions don't uh, and homelessness. Even Only housing does that. I was going to say, Kayla, even when we move post-pandemic, is the entire concept of a shelter um, just outdated? And and when we think about, you know, our new reality, and, and again, we got to get back to a lot of, we got to get over some things with our own existence in terms of socializing and being together and being in crowds and being comfortable again. And mm-hmm. and it, But in a post-vaccinated world, I do wonder, um, there have to be issues where you're like, hey, if even the normal flu, even influenza, even... The, like they will spread like wildfire through shelters. And when one person gets sick, a lot of people get sick and, and they're not up. These aren't people that are making regular doctor visits. Anyway, I almost feel like the entire concept of it post pandemic, post pandemic, we can't just go, well, the shelters worked before. Well, why don't we make it better? We're trying to do that with a lot of things. 
Yeah, I agree deeply. And I mean, there's countries like Finland who use shelters in a very, very minimal way. The, the time that folks might spend in them is extremely brief. They're really meant to be an, a, like, a, you know, an overnight, a two night and into uh, an improved housing situation of some kind. You know, we have we have palliative care wards on shelters. In, you know, in Canada, like folks who live on the street and then go to die in a shelter. This is unbelievable in such a wealthy country. And we really need to be looking at solutions we know exist. I, I mean, and the crux of the article was about and I, I'm glad we you know, we went a, a little bit with a deeper dive and I'm glad we did because I think mm-hmm. it, it it creates solutions. But the op ed's concept was that these charges have to get dropped. How hopeful are you that you'll again, we're going to have Josh Matlow on at 830. I think he would agree with you. I think Mike Layton would agree with you. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, I, I, I don't know how likely it is, but again, the city has to look at this and go, what are we realistically doing here? And yeah, PR matters in politics. And what's the likelihood that these people are going to be able to cough up, you know, these fines. Some of the people mm-hmm. that are charged obviously aren't homeless. They were supporters. They were, uh, you know, um, there to advocate for a nonviolent solution and they ended up getting tickets. But again, there's optics, right? Yeah, it's true. I mean, I think what has happened this week, it's, it's very exciting to see the motion from Matt, from Matt Law um, that will be tabled on Friday. Um, but we've also had the Toronto Obsman's ob, person doing, uh, you know, announced yesterday they're actually going to do an independent inquiry into this, into the fairness uh, of the evictions. And that has serious implications for folks who are charged. But it, to me, to, to me, this is just a distraction, frankly, from the major issue, which mm-hmm. is the need for the city to live up to its human rights obligations around the right to housing. The uh, op-ed is up on NowToronto.com. It's the director of research at The Shift, Caitlin Schwan. I loved having you on the show. Thanks for making the time for us today. Thanks for having me. Totally. Uh, we'll do it again. Caitlin Schwan uh, joining us. Um, all right. So there's going to be an ombudsman step in and investigate. This is new. An ombudsman will step in and investigate exactly what happened. And it's right at the start of his tenure. So he goes right from uh, frying pan to the fire. I think that's the right slogan uh, into the effort this summer to clear homeless encampments from several parks. Joining us to discuss someone who's advocated for a lot more questions about this is city councilor Josh Matlow. Josh, it is great to have you on. As always, thanks for making the time for me. Great to be here with you, Greg. Before we get going, would you like to guarantee athletes won't do this anymore? They don't say anything. Would you like to guarantee a Blue Jays victory tonight? I mean, no one's going to remember when politicians make promises or guarantees that don't work out. Do you want to guarantee a Blue Jays win tonight? (laughs) I guarantee that I hope they do. (laughs) (laughs) I guarantee there'll be at least 28,000 people at the Rogers Center. You just can't guarantee if they're going to be happy around 10 o'clock at night. I got you. Absolutely. Absolutely. I got you. Loud and clear. Um, And and I want to come circle back to some of, uh, of, uh, of where we're going with the pandemic too with you i promise we'll do that because i know uh, i know you're opinionated on it and i know people uh enjoy your perspective on it this is um is this progress that the ombudsman steps in and is going to look at this that we still have a lot more questions uh than answers knowing he's not investigating the actions of police i know that's been a topic among listeners and probably your constituents and people all across the city just asking if everything was done the right way that doesn't seem ridiculous the ombudsman's investigation is absolutely welcome. It certainly is progress uh, to ensure accountability, but also for for an actual change in the city's approach. Um, Councillor Layden and I have a motion that's coming to City Council later this week to request a judicial inquiry 
which is the city's mechanism through the City of Toronto Act to uh, to look into matters including uh, the police. So the two of them in conjunction uh, will will bear the truth and hopefully affect change if if council approves our motion that that is to uh, be determined. Um, but the reason for all this, if your listeners are wondering, like, why, why do we have to ask questions is because, um, you know, roughly two million dollars was spent on these clearings. Um, it was both violent, like gratuitously violent. So no matter what your view is on encampments or, or, or homelessness, um, it is just unreasonable that people were treated in the ways that the videos and the photos uh, witness. Uh, journalists were banned, which needs to be explained from actually covering some of these events. Um, and so, you know, I don't believe the tents are the answer, but the way that it was done was just horribly violent and inhumane and unacceptable to any reasonable person. Um, we also were concerned that it was ineffective and wasteful. Um, I was reading an article recently from a, 19, a 1990s newspaper, a newspaper from the 1990s that talked about the tent city problem that we had. And, you know, now we now they're encampments. But the same problem keeps going on because what we keep doing is that we clear parks and then shove people into laneways and they go under bridges and they go into sidewalks or they go into other parks, ironically. Very, very few of the people in the encampments actually ended up in in what the mayor called safe indoor spaces, which the reason they're out there is that they don't believe these spaces are safe in these shelters. I mean, that's a, that's a core issue there too, but we're also not adequately addressing uh, mm. access to affordable and transitional housing, mental health addiction. There's a number of things that we're just not doing well, and we just are hiding the problem and we're not fixing it and we've got to do better. So that's what these investigations seek to, 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 to look into, you know, how are the, all these decisions made and then hopefully we can then go, OK, how do we do it better? How long do we have a timeline for when your motion gets heard? Do we have a second timeline for when the ombudsman starts talking to people and then potentially issues a report? The ombudsman has already uh, put out his contact information for the world to, to see. And he's uh, he's actively seeking out uh, individuals, groups, whoever he should talk to, frankly, who would be able to provide him information. So his investigation is underway. Uh, Councillor Layton and I, we have a motion coming up, this city council meeting. City council, uh, this meeting uh, begins on Friday and then it continues into Monday. And I would suspect it will most likely be voted on on Monday. I think, and and we conflate things so badly now. It drives me crazy. We can't talk about one issue and then not another issue. So you hear sure. from so many people who see, as you said, the images were violent. There were a lot yeah. of problems, and and that's not to implicate one side a hundred percent or the other. It takes two to tango, like the phrase sure. goes. And that said. Um, I think two things. One, images and video of that. I saw it on the BBC News. It was the third story on the BBC uh, News that night on my television. And it's the cost. It's not like one issue is more significant than the other. But but nobody wants our city to be embarrassed. We love it too much. Those images weren't great when when it's when they're cycle around the world like that. It was it was it was I I think it was these were shameful times for our city. We did not look good um, because we didn't act well. And. Um, you know, when I when I heard other like political leaders like the mayor and others sort of just just defend everything that happened without actually understanding the facts or, or, or watching the videos or understanding what really was going on on the ground. I thought that was embarrassing and it wasn't leadership. 
Um, you know, the reality is we, of course, we should not uh, like we, we can't have encampments in our parks forever. That's I don't think, you know, most reasonable people would argue with that. And um, and and yes, if anyone's got a problem with a protester uh, throwing something at a cop. Well, I share that. That's wrong. yeah. Yeah. Like that. That's not that's not acceptable either. So, you know, just because those things are true doesn't mean that one, you know, we get into these sort of like sometimes ideological or sort of like, you know, I'm on one side of a debate or another. And, 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 and you know, I think thousand people can recognize that you can hold those truths to be to, to be real and also recognize that even if you love and support the police, I think the police do really good work. They can't just go in and start shoving people and doing violent things uh, in, 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 in what we saw in those videos in a civil society. The city, I don't believe, should have called the police in at, to the degree that they did. Um, uh, so, you know, mm. early in the morning before they even knew what these protests would look like, I, I, it, it seemed like they actually escalated the events. Um, uh, the, the ban on journalists from actually having access mm. to covering the events. I don't know how anybody in, in a free society would accept that. Um, you know, love it, love it or not, uh, or, 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 or if you were uh, uh, shocked by the events the way that, 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 that most of us are because we saw, you know, amateur video being done. Um, journalists being banned from covering uh, uh, city actions is unacceptable. I think it's unprecedented. I think it drives normal people like you and I crazy because, yeah, everything gets conflated and you say, wow, did you see those violent images? That doesn't make yeah. it look good. And you hear people go, well, living in a park isn't sustainable. No, no, I know that. I know you're not yeah. telling me yeah. anything. I don't know. I don't yeah. see the correlation. But but between the two at this point in time, people say this to me. And so I got I, I want to ask you this and they might ask you this. Mm -hmm. And so it's like it's like the Denzel Washington lawyer in Philadelphia. Explain it to me like I'm a six year old. Is it a conflict of interest for the mayor, any mayor, to be a member of the Toronto Police Services Board? I don't know, and I'm asking and putting it out there, and that's not to impugn John Tory, because the mayor's been on the board long before John Tory was mayor. Should should a mayor be? Um, well, it's not legally a conflict of interest. In fact, quite the opposite. Legally, the city is like formally represented on the board by the mayor and uh, and and a small handful of members of council. And then there's, of course, civilian appointees, et cetera, and, and provincial representatives there, too. So that's the way legally that it's set up. So is the mayor doing anything like wrong or, or is there a, a, a conflict of interest? Absolutely not. Mm -hmm. That being said, though, um, when, you know, when the mayor is uh, speaking on behalf of the people of Toronto, that's his primary job and being the leader of council, um, to, to, to just, you know, uh, blindly say that, you know, just defend all the city's actions. I don't think he was actually only defending the police. I think he was defending the, the decisions of, of, uh, of city staff as well without having all the facts. So he was on, uh, uh, another radio show. I won't mention the name on yours, but he, he I'm sure it's a great uh, one. Uh, Josh, I mean, I'm sure it's uh, just as much work goes into that one as this one. I'm sure <laughs> I can't. <laughs> but he 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 was on this this show, and 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 after after the uh, the encampment clearings, and and he was asked like, have you seen the videos? Have you seen the photos? And he claimed that he didn't, uh, but he was telling us that that everything was done done well, and the reality is either uh, uh, I mean I don't understand how he how I don't know he, uh, yeah how do you miss the coverage. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, and 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 then you know it also begs the question: Then why not? Because mm. um, uh, I think I think we need to know what's going on in in, in you know when it comes to our actions. Um, so 
Bottom line is, um, I want to see uh, an approach taken to vulnerable, vulnerable people in our city that actually is helpful, that actually helps them get to where they need to go to get support. We need to address um, the, the, the inaffordable housing crisis that we have in our city. We need to ensure that people have access to uh, mental health and addiction supports. I know middle to upper middle class people. Uh, who who mm. are well franchised in our society who ha- who struggle to to get those supports, let alone somebody uh, who who's living on our streets or in our parks. So there's so much more that needs to be done. We shouldn't just be going in and violently clearing people out of parks. And and when the mayor and others have said that they're going into safe indoor spaces, very few of them factually did. Yeah, many of them are not because they're telling us, and we need to start listening to them, that uh, they don't feel safe in those spaces in those shelters. I got a couple more quick ones for you. If someone comes up to you on the street and says, hey, uh, Councillor Mallow, how do you think the city's handling COVID? Give me your your pulse. Give me your lay of the land right now. What are we doing right? What what can we doing more of? I I know you've been one that has said, hey, not everything. You know, we're going to get some stuff wrong along the way. The question is, when we get it wrong, can we say so and can we correct it? Um, I I, I worried about extracurriculars being uh, postponed so quickly. Safe things for fully vaccinated high school students students and they were strongly discouraged um, by Dr. Davila. We increased capacity at sporting events. I think that's good. I hope everyone feels good about that. What do you say to people when they say, well, how's COVID going in the city of Toronto? Well, I mean, the the, the, the case numbers suggest that we are at a plateau now, which is good news. Um, and it, it'll be, it'll be, I think, important to watch what happens when the colder weather arrives in earnest and more people are, are congregating indoors uh, rather than, than outside. And so, you know, th- that, that we have to watch, that we have to watch. It's right. um, and we are in a race to finally get uh, our, our kids and other uh, unvaccinated people uh, uh, finally uh, protected. That being said, though, um, I, I agree that, um, you know, when it comes to school, um, we need to do everything possible and, of course, as safe as possible to make sure that our kids have a normal experience because, um, uh, you know, COVID is, COVID is a real and, and pressing priority when it comes to health. Uh, but mental health is real as well. Uh, uh, and, and uh, you, know, you know, those of us who have younger kids, uh, there's a range of different stories. I know that uh, friends of mine who have teenagers, uh, their their kids really suffered over the past couple of years. Totally, with, with depression, yeah. with isolation, and um, and and you know they're only going to go through high school once. Like this, you know, this is this is their this is their this is their childhood. Um, so if they miss out on a lot of the extracurricular activities and these experiences that that we all remember is really important to us, um, I, I think it's going to have a real effect on 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 their well being. So. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm on the side of you know, when it comes to certainly when it comes to schools, do everything possible to make it just a, a healthful, safe, but as normal an experience as possible. And then if it's, it's clear that that that's not working, of course, we have to. Yeah. That. Uh, but 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 I'm, I am concerned for our kids. Um, I need to uh, I, I know you can't comment on the case. I know you can't. But Friday's the Supreme Court ruling about um, the provincial government cutting city council in the midst of a municipal election. I just want you to reflect upon that for the listeners, because we were talking about it. What a chaotic time. And I think we felt for everybody, everybody who was putting up campaign signs. You're a veteran at this, but I really felt for the rookies who, as you know, you make the you make the plunge into public office. A lot of scrutiny, a lot of this, a lot of that. Can you yeah. just reflect on how chaotic that was in the city of Toronto? 
Oh, I, I, I can speak to it. I moved the motion to, uh, to, to, to send our lawyers to the Supreme Court. Um, I believe in it so much. And, and the reason I do is because um, it, I believe that, again, no matter, again, it's one of these, you know, it's similar to our earlier discussion, no matter if you think it should be one counselor or 100 counselors or anything in between, to, 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 to chaotically change the fundamental nature of the election and even the ward sizes and the name, like in the, the, the jurisdictions and all of that, and, and have all these candidates scrambling in the middle of an election that was already begun was just undemocratic. Like it, it created absolute chaos. I know candidates you were referring to, like these these new candidates who had, you know, quit their jobs, yeah. put their life on hold, uh, spent money to, to to print literature and everything, and then they found out that the ward that they were running in didn't exist. The ward number and name had changed. Like everything they had done was for naught. And uh, and they were the, the rug had been pulled from them. I spoke with voters at the doors who didn't know what ward they were in anymore because things had changed like overnight. Um, and it was it was it was just it was chaos. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, we I think as a city, we should be able to debate the the what our council looks like and how many you know, how many people are there and how many wards we have and what kind of representation we want. But we should be able to make it as Trontonian. And then if you like what Toronto City Council decides, you support it. If you don't, you can elect somebody else. But it shouldn't be a unilateral uh, decision without any consultation by the Premier of Ontario, just because he's in a you know, pissy match with council. Because he, you know, I mean, it, it was just absurd. Amen. Thanks very much for coming on, Josh. I love our conversations. We're tight for time, but I appreciate you making it for us today. My pleasure. Thanks, Greg. All right, medical exemptions. Maybe anecdotally, this has happened to you. You're in a store. Someone ha- is in a store without a mask on. I've had this happen two different times. Maybe it was spread out over nine weeks, so it's not terribly often. Maybe I need to go to more stores, keep myself busier. But I've heard a woman say, it's been a woman both times, that, that's apropos of nothing, and the clerk says, do you have a mask? And she says, I have a medical exemption. Maybe you've heard that where I've been. Let's get to the bottom line of who has one and who doesn't. It's kind of a short list. Clinical pharmacologist Sabina Vora-Miller, our guest. It's great to have you on again. Thanks for making the time. Thanks for having me. Am I right about that? A really short list. There should be a a minuscule percentage of people that can legitimately claim a medical exemption uh, to COVID-19, right? That's correct. So with respect to the vaccines, there's really two uh, medical exemptions that are valid, and that's it. And the one is, it's tricky, right? It's something to do with the base or the dye of the vaccine, the color of the vaccine? No, actually. So the first one has to do... <laughs> I'm totally wrong. It's something, it's poly, it's poly something, right? Maybe yeah, it's... Polysarbate. Uh, okay. Polysarbate. Yeah, so, I knew it. I, I just couldn't look, I couldn't think of it at the time, but I knew it, you know. Exactly. So polysorbate 80 is actually a molecule that's very similar to PEG, uh, which is actually in the mRNA vaccine. So polysorbate is actually not in the vaccines, but because it's a similar molecule, essentially the exemption says that people who have a confirmed anaphylactic allergy to an ingredient in the COVID-19 vaccine or who has an anaphylactic reaction to their first dose um, should really seek advice from an allergist before getting the next dose. So it's not even a blanket medical exemption. In fact, there are fantastic high-risk allergy clinics that are occurring across Canada that are trying to get those who have reactions to even polysorbate and PEG um, get vaccinated in a safe space. And this shouldn't this shouldn't be misunderstood, should it, Sabina, with the idea that 
Um, and I know we're not talking AstraZeneca and we're not giving AstraZeneca anymore, but this shouldn't be um, th this is an, uh, a lot more severe reaction. Anaphylactic reaction isn't how people were after AstraZeneca or even if they had a reaction to that second Pfizer dose. That's completely different. Correct. So an anaphylactic reaction is a severe multi-system reaction. And the only way to treat an anaphylactic reaction is through an EpiPen. Um, mm -hmm. So these are very severe reactions. So typically those who have, you know, the different types of reactions after the vaccines, for instance, you might get a, a rash on your arm. Um, you know, those are not anaphylactic reactions and those don't qualify for medical exemption. Those who have, you know, had a much more severe multi-system reaction, um, to the vaccine can definitely still speak to an allergist to see how they can make the next dose possible. Um, but that, again, you know, the best thing to do is actually get yourself referred to an allergist mm -hmm. who deals with these um, on a daily basis. We have fantastic um, allergists in, in Canada who are doing this work, and I'm just so proud to know of quite a few of them doing this. Good. So that's exemption one. Um, the second exemption is for people who were diagnosed with myocarditis, which is inflammation of the heart muscle, or pericarditis, which is inflammation of the membrane around. Um, and this is after dose one of the COVID vaccine. So for these people specifically who've had myocarditis or pericarditis after dose one of the COVID-19 vaccine, they should not get dose two at this time until we understand more about this specific side effect, because the side effect is really immune mediated. So it's, it, it happens because of the immune reaction um, that your body is basically um, mm. generating after the vaccine. But people who've had prior, so previous myocarditis or previous pericarditis for any other reason, they should speak to their medical team because for them, most likely, it's, it would still be okay for them to get the first or the second dose of the COVID-19 vaccine. So the exemption is really only for those who had myocarditis or pericarditis after dose one. Sabina Vora-Miller, our guest on Toronto Today, uh, she's got a great Twitter thread on explaining what is and what isn't. And I want to get to the what isn't uh, before we wrap. And you're on Twitter at SabiFM, S-A-B-I-V-M, excuse me, V-M. Let me get it right. Yeah. Uh, but nonetheless, there's two myths, and I've heard these myths before, and you can bust these, you can play myth buster right now. One is for people who are pregnant. The other is people who are deathly afraid of needles. Everybody probably knows somebody that is neither of these are legitimate medical exemptions being pregnant at any stage of pregnancy any trimester or being deathly afraid of needles neither of those will work no and you know what in fact especially people who are pregnant should go get vaccinated because pregnancy puts you at a mm -hmm. higher risk for having you know an ICU admission for being hospitalized for being intubated for early you know to prevent early birth and serious illness and death so it is so important for pregnant people to go get vaccinated to protect themselves and to protect their babies um, so in fact if anything you know I think that pregnancy should be a reason why um, I would strongly recommend that one goes out and gets vaccinated. With respect to those who have um, serious anxieties about needles and medical visits, you know, we do have clinics that are uh, that accommodate specifically such concerns. Um, so, and and you could either do those. You could also try and do um, either a home visit or a drive-through like vaccine clinic, um, just so that you're getting it at the space where you're most comfortable. And for those who have milder anxieties, the card system is fantastic. So that's you know 
being comfortable, ask for your accommodations, mm. relax, distract yourself, use a numbing patch or cream. Um, all of these can be helpful to try and alleviate some of those anxieties. I'm putting you on the spot, uh, and I'm making this late, but I want to help a listener here who texts. She's really interested in your opinion. Uh, she's got a friend who's dealing with Bell's palsy for the last four months. Since she got her first Pfizer shot, uh, they write both neurologists she'd been seeing have advised that she not get the second mRNA shot. Do you have any expertise or any advice there? Yeah, so I can answer specific medical questions because she's also being followed by her physician over there. So I would definitely follow the guidance of the physician. Um, So even with Bell's palsy, I think what is important to know is that for the most part, the the chances of having... Mm. Um, repeated Bell's policy is low, but for but for specific concerns and specific people, um, that might not be the case. And so she's being followed by her physicians. I would definitely follow the guidance of her of her specialist in this situation. I got you. Great, great uh, on, on the fly there. That's actually great advice. Thank you very much for the time this morning, Sabina. We'll talk soon. It's my pleasure. Thank you. So we saw it down in Windsor. Story a few days ago. This many. Healthcare workers, a couple big hospitals, Hotel Du Grace is one in Windsor. I lived in Windsor for uh, a year and Hotel Du Grace, massive, massive hospitals. So you see the headline. And again, I, I know I sound like uh, I'm really down on headlines. They get you into a story. They make us click on things. Sure, they do. Uh, but it was like in the hundreds. And you're like, oh, my gosh, hundreds of healthcare workers have been suspended. They haven't got the vaccine yet. And but that was a number out of like 22,000. Generally speaking, we're seeing COVID-19 vaccine requirements as a condition of employment in healthcare. We don't have it in LTC right now. And that's a massive, massive problem. Uh, we saw a story yesterday of uh, a grieving daughter like pleading with the province to mandate vaccines for long term care. Many U.S. states have done this. We have not. So it's maybe time to stop patting ourselves on the back for how we are with healthcare and how we take care of our elders. On Fierce Healthcare, here's the headline. How many employees of hospitals lost to vaccine mandates? Here are the numbers so far. And uh, we're joined now by the author of that particular article, Dave Moyo. Uh, thank you very much for uh, Moyo. Excuse me. Thank you very much for making the time, Dave. I appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Did any of the data that you came across uh, surprise you when it came to the numbers and how many employees were being um, compliant, if you will, in in getting the vaccine? I think there's a uh, certain core amount of surprise in general when you think about healthcare workers. Um, maybe being hesitant to get the vaccine at all. But I think, at least over here in the States, a lot of the early reports that we're seeing are uh, anywhere from less than 1% of a total workforce to maybe a couple percent of the workforce. But I would say that so far, these are very early numbers. And these are a lot of systems that are either doing it voluntarily or um, one state, New York, just put their vaccine mandate into full effect uh, Mm -hmm. late Monday. So that's very much tip of the spear and a lot of these numbers are still trickling out you uh quote a uh, a former white house uh health policy uh advisor and people would know him ezekiel emmanuel he's been on actually with uh with me before on this radio station and he notes 99 percent of the workforce has been retained in most healthcare systems that have mandated this almost absolute full compliance i think i think we have this perception especially in some of the states that aren't as heavily vaccinated dave that that would shock people um, yeah, absolutely. The, that quote, um, I will say, came in about late August is when mm-hmm. he said that. So maybe a little bit before some of these uh, larger scale mandates. But he was very specifically referring to Houston Methodist, which was 
very much the first um, health care system to mandate this. Uh, in Texas, Houston, uh, they had about 26,000 people in their workforce. And at the end of the day, and after facing protests, a uh, lawsuit that didn't go anywhere, they only had 153 resignations, which is maybe half a percent or a little bit more. And he was using that as uh, encouragement for more systems to jump mm-hmm. on board. And Ezekiel Manuel also uh, sort of quarterbacked an industry letter of dozens and dozens of professional groups um, to get together and advocate for these uh, types of mandates. Well, this was well before the any of the vaccines have received a full regulatory approval. This is back when it was still mm-hmm. emergency authorization. And for the most part, uh, his prediction has sort of borne fruit. Um, again, we're seeing some of the early wider scale uh, mandates go into effect. Mm. And um, maybe the most stark number that I saw was that New York City has a uh, public health, uh, public hospital system. And as of Monday's uh, mandate going into effect, they said they had about 5,000 workers that were suspended. Now that's suspended, they have until the end of the week to not lose their jobs and go get a last minute vaccine, which from all intents and purposes, when these deadlines come to come around, we've been seeing a lot of healthcare workers go, Oh no, this is my job. I need to yeah, get vaccine yeah. right now. Yeah. They, yeah. They, they, they see dollar signs, understandably. So hopefully they see some of the, some of the health, uh, you know, concepts and, and benefits. Uh, Dave Moyow joining a staff writer at fierce healthcare. Um, how, and you mentioned that earlier, how many health organizations are suspending employees? How many are firing employees? Because I hear it, and you probably do as well. People say, well, wait a minute. If the mandates are temporary, if the passports are temporary, why are you firing people from careers as opposed to suspending them from from basically being a spanner in the works for right now? So a lot of the suspensions that we're seeing are very temporary. It's, hey, we set a deadline. You didn't make the deadline. We're going to give you another couple weeks to get get everything together. This is your last chance. Um, and then those do turn into firings. And I think they're firings because you've got a wheel to stick mm-hmm. in this case. That when uh, the organizations are putting these rules in place, they want people to know that they mean it because you, you've got to think that in, in the U.S. to healthcare workers, a lot of these vaccines were available since um, mid-December or the month to follow. There's been an opportunity where the hospitals were pushing educational initiatives. Um, Leadership is generally very supportive of, we believe that all of our employees should get a vaccine. And then, Mm. you know, it's been several months and they're still seeing a substantial part of their workforce unvaccinated. And at the same time, we're now seeing, along with um, individual level mandates, along with some states, uh, I've said New York, but California, Maine, or a few others that go into effect near the end of the week. Uh, mm. It's happening on the federal level, too. Earlier this month, the Biden administration announced that uh, workforce vaccination mandates will become a requirement for participation in Medicare and Medicaid, which yeah. for pretty much every hospital is a substantial source of revenue. So it, it means a lot of these hospitals, one, their revenue is starting to become at stake. Two, yeah. uh, just to provide care, you want a... Um, 
immunized workforce. The last thing you would want is a patient getting COVID from the person giving them care. That's not a good look. <laughs> no. And, and, and yeah, when, when that does happen and, and we look at it, it's not commonplace, but people see it in a news story and they think, well, it's, it is commonplace when it even may not necessarily be. So there's a, there's a perception issue as well. Dave, I got to leave it there. Thanks very much. Uh, the website, fiercehealthcare.com for your data. Thanks for the time today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for checking out the Toronto Today podcast. We appreciate it. Live show tomorrow, again, on the National Day of Truth and Reconciliation. We are in. Some of you have the day off, and if so, I'm glad that you do, and I hope those conversations get advanced. I hope you reflect. I hope you look towards not just the past, but where we're going in the short-term future to handle some of these issues so that they're not just talk and talking points as well. Thank you again for listening. We really appreciate it here.